Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Julia Burston is the author of a recently released book, When Women Lead. She's CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent and has been on air as a reporter for the network since 2006. She also plays a central role on CNBC's bi-coastal tech-focused program, Tech Check, delivering reporting, analysis, and CEO interviews with a focus on social media and the intersection of media and technology. In 2013, she created and launched the CNBC Disruptor 50, an annual list she oversees highlighting private companies transforming the economy and challenging companies in established industries. She also helped launch the network's Closing the Gap initiative, covering the people and companies companies closing gender and diversity gaps. A graduate of Princeton University, she has been a reporter for Fortune magazine, as well as a contributor to CNN and CNN Headline News. She was also an intern for Vice President Gore's Domestic Policy Office. In this episode, she shares key lessons she's drawn from over 60 women CEOs and 300 research articles related to women and leadership. Why we see so few women in leadership positions today, hint, a psychological concept called pattern matching has a lot to do with it. And what unique leadership traits women leaders can bring to your strategy and company and why they are so important, especially today. Ladies and gentlemen, Julia Burston. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to have you. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for talking to me today. So I open the podcast with the same question for everyone. Just to get us to know you a little bit more personally, if you could complete the sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. I can't stop asking questions. <laughs> I have a question asking problem. It has proved to be very helpful in my career, but I just am so curious. And some people are curious and then they just sit on the question, but I just can't help asking the questions. And this is true both with my friends. Sometimes it drives them crazy. It's true with my colleagues at work. I'm accused of sometimes slowing down meetings because I'm asking too many questions, but I think it's my superpower. When did you realize that that was at least one of your superpowers? You know, I started as a young journalist at Fortune Magazine and one of my best friends still, she's now co-CEO of Blackstone Real Estate, Kathleen McCarthy. She was my roommate at the time. And she and I got into an argument because she said, you asked too many questions and I don't think that I'm getting to know you as well because you're always the one asking the questions. So it was basically a confrontation about this idea that I had this hunger for answers about everything, but I needed to figure out how to modulate that and make sure that it didn't come off the wrong way. But it was very useful to have this argument with her about my question asking addiction while I was also honing my skills as a reporter at Fortune magazine. And now my whole career is built on asking questions. As a reporter at Fortune, now I'm an on-air reporter at CNBC. There I do live interviews as well as taped interviews. My whole career is about asking questions on background as well as on the record. And I think a lot of it is really understanding how to ask questions in a way that comes across as enthusiastic and curious, but not pushy. That's the balance of how to be curious but not annoying. Yes, that's fascinating. My wife, like you, is a very powerful woman executive and she's known for asking questions. People get scared when she asks questions. I've been married for 25 years. I know her. I know she's curious, but it can 
come across as, oh, she is trying to find an error in my logic or something like that. Well, by the way, maybe that's sexism in terms of the way people are perceiving her. Exactly. There have been plenty of times that people have said to me, oh, you're just so mean in the way you're asking questions. And I talk about this a little bit in the book. I said, would you have said the same thing to a man asking the same question? And most of the time they say, actually, no, I would have expected that kind of approach from a man. So it's so interesting to see how people's tones are judged differently. There's a great study I referenced in my book, actually conducted by Fortune magazine, when it talks about employees and feedback. Female employees are much more likely to get feedback based on their style. Male employees are much more likely to get feedback based on their performance. The times I've been accused of asking questions in a way that is maybe not ladylike, which is ridiculous considering that it's my job to ask questions, I think about that study and there have been a couple times I've referenced it, but it's a good one in the book. Yes, I want to get into the book and I love that you show how social norms do put women into a box and yet embracing what unique leadership skills women bring to the office if you lean into those. And we're going to talk about this. And I would say any leader, male or female, would benefit and get stronger as a leader by embracing some of these more characteristically female leadership traits. Yes, yes, absolutely. I want to get to that in a moment. First, I want to ask you the second question that I ask everyone. And this is great because you have interviewed so many CEOs and talk so much strategy. What's your definition of strategy? This is a big question. For me, it's about understanding how to turn down your confidence to gather as much information as possible. And not just information from the people you work directly with and from your usual sources, but diverse information. This idea that you might get your best idea from someone you don't frequently talk to at work or from someone from a different group. Leaders often get their best ideas from people who are on the ground closest to the problem. So turning down your confidence and your assertion that you know how to do something to gather that diverse data. And then once you have it, assess that data without bias and then turning back up your confidence to execute. So I think a lot about confidence. There's this myth that you have to be confident all the time to be a good leader. And that's just not true. You actually benefit from not being confident all the time. You benefit from knowing how to, in the same way I had to learn how to modulate my question asking, modulate your confidence to know, you know, I don't know the answers. I'm not going to come up with a good strategy unless I'm really open in my gathering of data. Yeah, I love that. There's a Zen koan. I won't go into it, but basically the metaphor is when your cup is full, no more is going to fill into your cup. You have to empty your mind and be open to what you don't know. But then I hadn't thought about this way is that then you activate that confidence again in order to lead and make a decision and execute. I'm jumping around a little bit because I'm just excited to have you here. You talk about this listening to diverse opinions as something that is either unique to or especially, uh, I'm not going to use the right language here, but it's something that a woman can bring to leadership. So there's this idea of communal leadership, the idea of leadership by bringing together lots of different ideas as opposed to hierarchical top-down leadership. And if you look at the data, if you look at the studies, women are more likely to lead in a communal way. This is not about biology. This is just traditionally looking at the recent couple of past decades of research. Women are more likely to be interested in bringing in diverse ideas to formulate their own decision about how to lead. There are a lot of reasons that might be true. There might be structures where their employees are more comfortable talking to them. They might orient their companies differently. But one thing I found with a number of the women I interviewed for my book is a lot of them found the best solutions to problems on the ground, closest to the problem. I interviewed the CEO of Care International. This humanitarian aid organization operates in 69 countries around the world. During the pandemic, Michelle Nunn, who runs the organization and her executive team, they're all stuck in their houses and they did not know the right answers to the problems. They did not know how to help people in all of these different situations around the world. So what they did is they went and they listened to people who were on the ground and say, hey, your strategy of sending a soap 
soap is not useful. We cannot eat soap. This is not helping us cope with the pandemic. And they found the solutions not in their heads, but down in the ground with the people. So they created systems to gather that information. So this idea of relying on data rather than ego, creating systems to help gather diverse information, that's something that women leaders, especially those in my book, have found a lot of success with. Fascinating. Yes. And what I love about your book also is that you blend both your personal experience and the stories you weave together over 60 interviews, stories of other women leaders, but also you rooted in research as well. And I think that's so important. Yes. And look, I'm a journalist. I started off this project wanting to tell these stories of these amazing women who had defied the odds and launched and scaled these phenomenal companies. But the more I dug into their stories, the more I wanted to understand why the strategies they were taking were so effective. So that's when I dug into the academic research. During the pandemic, I read about 300 academic studies about both the strategies and about gender and these strategies and whether women were more likely to do these things and why, in fact, if anyone does these things, takes these strategies, they might be more effective. All right. So I want to get into you laying out what are this key, unique leadership strategies, approaches of women. But I want to read a sentence for you from a podcast that we ran. I interviewed a couple months ago. This is James Stravitas, the admiral, former head of NATO. He, in this podcast, said, I think 300 years from now, when the history of the century is written, it's going to be about the rise of women. You're going to see women really come fully into the 50-50 balance in pretty much every workspace and leadership roles. The planet is going to be vastly better for that, and companies are going to be better for that. How do you react to that? I think he's right. I think we're a long way away from that. I share his optimism, but the data, and one reason I want to write this book is the data is just so crazy. 8% of CEOs of the Fortune 500 are women, 8%, and that is an all-time high. Venture capital funding, which is incredibly powerful, it creates the Googles and Metas and Ubers of the world. Venture capital funding creates the companies that change the way we live. Last year, 2% of it went to female-founded companies. A larger portion, about 15%, went to co-ed teams, and then about 75% went to teams that were entirely founded by men. To me, that data is crazy. But the more we talk about the data and the more we talk about the fact that female-led companies are more likely to yield returns faster, they're more likely to have higher profitability based on various studies, which I include in my book, more that people see that data, the more likely they are to try to change those numbers. So there's a really interesting stat around critical mass that I talk about in my book. And there's this idea that once a minority group gets to around 30% of the larger group, that is when they can affect change. We saw that in terms of the Senate and impacting certain legislation that was passed. You see that on boards. So that 30% number is so interesting because we see in a lot of situations, women nearing that 30% number. And once you get to the 30% number, I think that's when things can really take off much faster. Interesting. So how far are we away from 30% in the domain that you're studying? Well, it depends what we're talking about. When it comes to VC dollars, we're very far. When it comes to boards in certain states like California, where there's a law about having women on boards that's been challenged in the court, there we're seeing it change faster. Some companies have a lot more diversity in their leadership. It just really depends and it really changes from company to company. I think that there's so much data about how diversity, not just about men and women and gender, but also about racial and ethnic diversity and neurodiversity. Diversity in general is going to bring better ideas to the table. And you know, a number of people I interviewed for my book pointed out that if you look at the breakdown of just the United States and what percent of the country is white men, then you'd be well 
off to include the perspectives of people who look and sound different when you're making investment decisions or creating companies because the consumers are not predominantly white men, period. Yeah. I've seen studies that show that the propensity of investors to invest in companies has to do with how similar the leader of that company is. And of course, you've got the relationship they build as they grow up and you know in college. And so it can be self-propagating, but also it takes time to unwind that machine. Absolutely. And it's pattern matching. Investors naturally want to invest in a guy who reminds them of Mark Zuckerberg. You can't blame them. It worked out well for the ones who did invest in Mark Zuckerberg. But if that is always the instinct, especially in these early stage companies where you don't have a track record to invest in, you're investing mostly in the idea and the founder, that's when that pattern matching can have such an insidious effect. Can you explain, you do talk about the institutional headwinds, you talk about the social norms that women have to fight through, but explain what the psychological term pattern matching means. I like the term pattern matching better than the idea of bias or stereotype. Because to me, the idea of bias, we talk about unconscious bias, but still, if you hear bias, it seems like someone is kind of out to get another group. But the reality is, is there's a lot of instinct or decision or people behaving in a certain way that is not malicious. And I think it's really important to acknowledge, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone or blaming anyone for the fact that there are massive gender gaps. I think a lot of it is just societally perpetuated. So the reason I like the word pattern matching is it's very clear. People are looking to match patterns, whether it's someone to invest in or what a good CEO looks like. People think, hey, you know, Howard Schultz was a great CEO and he looked this way. Let's make sure our next CEO looks like him or the guy I'm going to invest in for a company looks like him. And so there's just this instinct for people to look for patterns. And to me, I like that because it takes the negativity of bias out of the equation. People are just hunting for patterns. And that doesn't mean that that's the right way to do things. There isn't a pattern of successful female CEOs. And unfortunately, when we talk about female CEOs in the tech space, the one that comes to mind most often, at least based on people I've been talking to, is Elizabeth Holmes. People think, oh yes, female tech CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, that is not the pattern you want to establish. you know. So I think the more we can sort of catch ourselves and saying, hey, am I making this decision because I'm really judging the data? Or am I just trying to chase a pattern? I have some amazing quotes in the book about how sometimes investors don't even evaluate the revenue models. They're just doing it based on the founder. Or there's one very famous investor who said he'll invest in anyone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg, which is why I made that reference earlier. So I think in terms of strategy, the more people can focus on data rather than patterns and stereotypes, the better. And there's some amazing hiring tools. They're relatively recent that help strip all of that out of the equation. There is crazy data about how if you have someone with a traditionally white name, and a traditionally black name or traditionally male name and a traditionally female name with exactly the same resume, people are going to pick the white man, even though it's the same resume. So I think now that there are these amazing tech-driven tools to eliminate that unconscious bias, that makes me optimistic. Got it. So let's take that optimism now to the next stage. We have counteracted some of those headwinds and untangled some of that self-reinforcing pattern. And now women are more often leaders. There's a larger portion of women leaders. Talk to us about some of these unique leadership traits. You already talked about the tendency to integrate more diverse points of view. What are some of the other traits? There's something called an adaptability quotient. You know, we talk about IQ and EQ. There's also the adaptability quotient, the ability to pivot quickly, look at data, to get signs that things are changing and make decisions based on the data. Again, back to the data and separate yourself from any personal connection you might've had to a plan that you made weeks or months ago. So women tend to have a high adaptability quotient there's amazing data about how women are more empathetic in their leadership, which by the way, is something that can be trained and taught. Yes, people may have more of an instinct towards 
empathy, but that doesn't mean that we all can't be more empathetic in our leadership. And that's hugely valuable because empathy with your employees, empathy with your customers, you're going to be more able to connect with what your customers really need if you can imagine the entirety of their situation, the entirety of their challenges. There are some great stories about the value of empathetic leadership and also the data about why it's so valuable in the book. So adaptability, empathy, the communal leadership that you mentioned, and then also vulnerability. There's a lot of data about how showing vulnerability really enables better collaboration. People are less intimidated, more willing to come forward. And I cite some of the research from the amazing vulnerability expert, Brene Brown. And there are other studies that have actually been built off of her research about the power of vulnerability in leadership. Could you define empathy in the way that you mean it? It's a word that's used very broadly. For me, it's the ability to relate to another person and put yourself in their shoes, not just when it comes to an individual issue, but sort of to be able to consider the entirety of their situation and maybe to understand why they're making the decisions the way they are. So if you're trying to relate to a consumer to say, hey, I can sell an ad for this kind of soap to a busy mom, but what is the problem I'm really trying to help her solve? So to me, empathy ties into big picture problem solving because if you're empathetic to the entirety of someone's situation, you might say, hey, I want to get to the root of the problem. And I think if you're thinking empathetically, you're more likely to think, I don't want to just put a Band-Aid, right? I'm really relating to this person. I don't want to just sell them a Band-Aid or offer them a Band-Aid. I want to look at the system and figure out how to get to the root of the problem. There's an amazing leader I cite who does a lot of that. Yeah. Could you talk to me about her? Because you talked about a woman leader who, in the space of medicine, finds the root of the problem and builds this really incredible business. And she does it using empathy. So her name is Toyin Ajayi. She's the co-founder and CEO of a company called City Block Health. And I think her story is so amazing because she's had experience in lots of different worlds. Her first job out of medical school, she'd gone to medical school in the UK. She went to Stanford. Her first job was in Sierra Leone in the capital of Freetown, where there was a pediatric hospital. This is a very poor country. And she was trying to help the pediatric hospital better serve its patients. And what she realized when she got there was that there was no running water. And no matter what she was going to do to try to help the doctors and give them better tools or better strategies, you couldn't really fix the situation until you fixed the running water. So there was supposed to be running water in the building and she figured out what it was. There was a pump that was broken. She hired a plumber. But for her, it was this idea that if you fix the foundational challenge, then whatever band-aids you're going to offer are going to be far more effective. So fast forward, she really improves this hospital, but then she goes to Boston Medical Center and she's a resident there finishing her residency. And she says the system is lacking empathy. They would help people out. They would give them a band-aid. They would treat the immediate cause of their pain or their injury. And then in many cases, they would send them out into the streets. These people could be homeless and then they'd return to the emergency room a month later. So there was this problem with the system that they weren't actually helping these patients get better in the big picture. They might help them in that moment, but then it was an incredibly expensive cost for the medical system and not actually helping the patients. So she said, okay, how do we fix the water supply here? What is the foundational issue? So she created this company, City Block Health, that is targeting those patients that are having the worst issues and often the biggest cost for the medical system. And she figured out how to get Medicare and Medicaid to pay them based on long-term outcomes, not based on the volume of care, which of course doesn't necessarily help if you run a lot of tests and the person doesn't get better, it doesn't help. So City Block Health is doing that. It's trying to fix the water supply. They have people who are effectively social workers helping get people housing, better social benefits, and then figuring if they can help the people's overall situation, make them healthier, give them a safer place to live, then they're not going to be weighing on the healthcare system and costing so much for emergency rooms. So it's a win-win, but it comes back to this idea of how can I really relate to the person who's having a problem and what is the water supply that needs to be repaired? 
I can see how that links or that becomes more naturally evident to her because of the empathy and the communal problem solving and some of the other traits that you underscore. Wow, this is amazing. So I've got so many questions. I know our time with you is limited, so I'm going to poke a little bit here just on a few quick things. Of all the strategic advice you've gotten, whether that's career advice, whether that's corporate advice, what's been the most impactful? What's a piece of strategic advice that we should all keep in mind? To not be afraid. I'm very risk averse. I've only had two jobs in my career, Fortune Magazine and CNBC. But watching these entrepreneurs who are so courageous, I feel like we could all benefit from having a little bit more courage, a little bit more willingness to get told we're wrong or to get told our idea is bad. And just that courage to keep pushing forward and iterating. And this idea that we can all just push ourselves to have a little bit more courage. And I've been thinking about that word courage a lot because you can have a great idea, but be afraid of being criticized and not do it for that reason. And the ones that succeed have the courage to admit when they're wrong and to figure out how to keep learning from their mistakes. And that's really what has stuck with me. That's awesome. When you learn from your mistakes, then it's not a failure. It is part of the journey. Exactly. Part of the process. Again, so I have so many more questions and I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. So is there something that I didn't ask or you didn't get to say? One thing that struck me is I think we talk a lot about leadership in our culture and there's this idea that people are either good leaders or they're not even in that category. And everyone who I've interviewed and written about has pushed themselves to improve. No one is born a great leader. No one is born naturally good at strategy. It's impossible. You might have instincts. You might have a secret superpower. I think everyone has their superpower that they could develop, but everyone has invested in pushing themselves and figuring out how to improve and iterate on their natural talents. So that's something that I think is really essential. And this myth of the person who emerges fully formed from a garage with an idea for Google. Those are the myths, but the reality is that everything takes a lot of hard work and everyone can improve their own approach to strategy and approaching business problems. So building on that, I'm just going to ask you one final question here, which is let's talk for a moment to that person, that diverse person, whether that's gender or ethnicity or race or gender affiliation, who's facing these headwinds, is facing this pattern matching. And double standards, lots of double standards. Right, right. Yeah, I've painfully, not personally, but I've seen it. What do you suggest? Where should they start? What should they have in mind when they go to work tomorrow? So I asked a lot of women this question, dozens and dozens of women, and probably all the women I interviewed. I said, you know, you're facing all these challenges, less access to capital, bias. People were saying rude and inconsiderate things to you when you were pitching them in meetings. How did you persist? How did you have the courage and the wherewithal to not get discouraged and give up? What was your strategy? And there were some really interesting ones that came up, but the favorite one of them that I think a lot about is this idea of not letting it bother you by separating the bias or the pattern matching and the stereotype from what's actually productive. This idea that if someone says they hate your idea and then gives you some feedback, being able to separate what part of that feedback has nothing to do with me, what part of that feedback is totally just stereotype, like when they ask the female CEO, so who's your white male co-founder? Or, you know, you're not going to be able to do this alone because no one will trust anyone who looks like you. Taking that and just putting it to the side and then figuring out, well, okay, well, what if that feedback might actually be valuable. Because if you can figure out how not to let the terrible stuff really bother you, you'll actually be able to gain and improve based on the bits of feedback that are real. So there was a woman I interviewed named Aya Badir, who's the founder of a company called Little Bits, which was like a kids coding company, which she later sold. I asked her this question. She's Lebanese. She's a woman. She faced so much bias and discrimination. And she said she thinks 
of facing those issues is like remembering to wear a jacket when it's cold outside. You know there's going to be bias and discrimination. You just prepare yourself for it. And so it allows you to just figure out which part of the conversation to erase from your memory. She's like, but if you remember to bring your jacket, you're not going to be cold. It's not going to bother you. But it's not like it's impossible to remember to bring a jacket. That's what you do when the temperature dips. So she sort of thinks of it as like putting up an armor. And then if she goes in with that attitude, she might actually get valuable feedback to make her product better. Oh, that is so powerful. And I could see we can all have a jacket. That's our super jacket that we can put on and do battle. Amazing. Julia, thank you so much. Certainly, we're going to encourage people to buy and read When Women Lead. How else can they connect with you, follow you, be part of your movement? I'm on Twitter. I'm Jay Borston on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm Julia Borston on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just search my name on LinkedIn. And I have a website, juliaborston.com, where you can find a lot more about When Women Lead. I even link to a great empathy test. You can test how high your empathy is. Love it. Well, thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for sitting with us to at least share some of it with us. It's totally my pleasure. I'm so grateful for your interest in my new book. Awesome. Have a great day. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.